crisis care is a is a topic which is you know in the news a fair bit. Certainly, if you spend any time on social media and have mental health accounts that you follow, it's a big issue. And we hear a lot from people with lived experience who who say you know that crisis care is in crisis. What's your kind of view of uh, how the service is working now? How crisis resolution teams are are performing? I, I think they're working very variably. I think the intended model for crisis teams, which was that they would focus on a fairly small number of people with severe mental health problems and form strong relationships with them and provide them with quite intensive, often socially focused care. I think that hasn't really happened as intended in most places, particularly often because of other pressures within local systems of care. So crisis teams are very often much less intensive than they were originally intended to be. So they they should, the idea when they were set up by people like John Holt, who was an Australian psychiatrist who pioneered them here, the idea was, for instance, that they could go and see people twice a day and maybe spend really long periods with them if that was what they needed. Very few crisis teams appear to be doing that now. The original idea also was that they'd do lots of work with families, that they'd do provide a lot of, sort of social and psychologically focused interventions, as well as doing things like medication supervision. Well, what's interesting is when you talk to clinicians, service users, people's family and friends about what they regard as crisis, good crisis care, actually there's quite a lot of agreement. So clinicians would often like to be seeing people intensively, like to be forming really good relationships with them. They'd like to be providing them with a wide range of interventions, not just supervising risk and medication, but often for a a variety of reasons of which the First on the list is probably resources and the second is probably implementation problems, though those things seem not to happen and the service they provide is far more limited than it was really intended to be, hence the the service user dissatisfaction. So the core randomised controlled trial uh, that's just been published in The Lancet recently, tell us about that. Okay, so this was one of the two major streams in the core programme. And the main aim was to try to get crisis teams to be both more satisfactory to people using them and more successful in reducing overall acute service use by reducing the problem of people being quickly readmitted after an episode of crisis team care. So what's been observed a a number of times, most recently in a paper that Joe Hayes and others published in Lancet Psychiatry a couple of years ago, is that the readmission rates to crisis care 
are really high after people have had an episode of care with crisis teams. So Joe and colleagues found half of the people who'd used the crisis team going back to an acute service within a year. And that's problematic for the services because acute care is incredibly expensive in comparison with other forms of care. So it takes up a lot of resources that people might want to focus on developing decent services to support recovery, but actually they can't because it all gets consumed by hospitals and crisis teams. And it's also very problematic for people using the services because acute care is generally not what people would like to be receiving. It's it's not very popular, even at its best. And obviously, people want to recover without being impeded by repeat crises. So what, what we wanted to do was to set up an intervention that would make that readmission less likely. So the thought things we thought were important were to support people with self-management skills and particularly with the self-management skills that are relevant to a crisis. So things like recognising early warning signs and doing something about them, both in terms of reducing your own stress and seeking help. And also we decided that the best people to provide that to provide support with that self-management were people who had relevant lived experience. So from that, the idea of a self-management intervention that would be supported by peer support workers developed. And we, we spent initially about two years really developing the intervention and thinking about how the peer supporters would work and and doing an initial tryout of the intervention and of the outcome measures. We then went on to do a large randomised controlled trial in six areas of this self-management intervention. What what, What it actually consists of is people who are just at the point of discharge from crisis teams were offered a 10 session 10 sessions with a peer support worker and the sort of central element of that was going through and completing a recovery workbook that's based on some work by Rachel Perkins and Julie Rapper and it included thinking about early warning signs and what to do about signs of a repeat crisis, but also broader things about setting people's personal recovery goals and thinking what they could do to achieve them. So so that's, that's the intervention that the treatment group, the experimental group got in our trial and the control group just were sent this workbook through the post. I've got to say Julie and Rachel did good work on that workbook because we thought that the control group would probably just ignore something that arrived through the post fairly randomly. But actually, they quite a lot of people in the control group reported that they'd looked at it, filled it in, found it useful, which which made our comparison a bit less clear than it might have been. But anyway, so we had this 
group of 400 odd people, half of whom were randomized to the peer-supported intervention and half to this control condition of just getting the workbook. Everything else remained the same about their care. So as is usual with crisis teams, some of them were discharged to community mental health teams or early intervention services to other forms of secondary care. Other people who were thought not to need that went back toward to GPs. And our primary measure was whether people had a repeat admission to crisis care over the subsequent year. So we found a significant difference between the group who had the peer support, of whom 29% were admitted again to an acute service, so to hospital or crisis team or crisis house or some combination of those over the next year, Whereas in the control group who just got the workbook through the post, the rate was 38%. So that's not massive, but it was statistically significant. And given that it's actually really difficult to, it seems, to develop interventions that reduce bed use and reduce acute admissions, we were excited to see that result, particularly as it's quite a unique result for a peer support intervention. There there haven't really been similar demonstrations very much in people with severe mental health problems that peer support, that an intervention involving peer support can have such a strong influence on service use. There were some results that were a bit more disappointing to see as well. We had a range of secondary measures like self-rated recovery, self-management skills, and although there were trends towards the experimental group doing better, they weren't very marked trends and they weren't statistically significant. The, The people who had the peer-supported self-management intervention were more satisfied with their care during the crisis. So that was another gain for, for that intervention. They are really encouraging results, aren't they? I think, you know, if you look at the evidence for peer support in mental health that's been produced over the last few years, there isn't really very much. But obviously it's a uh, it's an approach which is received very positively um, yeah. by people with mental illness. And so there's a question about how we can integrate it into effective interventions, which you seem to have done here. Mm. What, what, what do you think the implications are? Do you think this is evidence that we should start doing this now in practice? I, I do, actually, or at least evidence that we should conduct a really large implementation and outcome study to try and make it work in practice. And that's particularly because while there isn't too much evidence so far for peer support in people with severe mental health problems, there is actually already quite a lot of evidence for the beneficial effects of self-management interventions in, in various contexts and with various outcomes. So one of one of 
the people who worked on Cool, who's called Mel Lean, has just taken a lead on a systematic review that we're going to submit for publication soon, which is on self-management in people with severe mental health problems. And I, it's about to be submitted. So I won't say much about the overall conclusions, but certainly looking at the studies that went into that, there's already a lot of decent evidence around for trying to implement self-management approaches in a systematic way. That's also something that service users often say that they would like, and yet we're not very good at doing it at the moment. People aren't routinely supported in things like working on really detailed crisis plans that they've actually taken a lead on. They're not supported to think about their recovery goals and how to implement them. And I think CORE, as well as providing support for using peer support, it, it adds to the evidence that we really should be providing self-management interventions to people across the board. Yeah, I guess there's nothing new about that in mental health, is there? You know, I'm looking back 20 years, thinking about the Bipolar Foundation and their mm. self-management training that they've offered, you know, the importance of recognising triggers and warning signs and keeping a mood diary and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's well established in uh, in care and practice, but not necessarily supported um, massively by, by yeah. research. But as you say, there's, there's evidence now that does that. And I think it's not particularly well implemented at the moment, probably better in Bipolar than elsewhere but if you look at routine care in this country it doesn't appear that most people get that so it's not just that it doesn't have evidence to support it it's that it doesn't happen I think one reason is that it's not made it in nice kind of nice guidance tends to nod at it um, but not really to put it as a a headline recommendation that people should have self-management interventions whereas things like CBT for psychosis are made much more prominent but actually one reason for talking about call at and about self-management generally at a nursing conference is that it's self-management is an intervention that I think can be supported by a much wider range of people than CBT and it's hard to see why we're not delivering more of it. So if there are services that are interested in, in learning from this and implementing this themselves, what are the barriers to that? Is this a setup that could be done and, and rolled out locally? Yeah, I mean, I think we found it was pretty doable. The biggest barrier we found was in setting up the employment of the peer support workers. So mental health trusts, for instance, it's surprising given what they do, but they actually create a lot of barriers often to employing people who've had or currently have mental health problems. And we had quite a lot of tricky conversations explaining why 
obviously people's occupational health checks might indicate that they'd had mental health problems because actually that was the whole point of employing them in that role. And I think peer support is still not sufficiently embedded that most trusts will straightforwardly set up employment contracts. One thing that I think works better in some areas is getting the voluntary sector to employ people, but then that can actually have its own complications when they're working alongside trust staff. I think the fact that it was pretty integrated into the work of trusts was one thing that was helpful in getting a a range of people with quite significant mental health problems to receive peer support. So the peer support workers got some supervision from someone who was an experienced peer supporter, but also had supervision from clinicians in the trusts. And I think that was helpful in allowing them to work with a group, work quite independently with a group of people whose mental health problems were sometimes relatively severe. So I think just employing people is is probably the the biggest barrier. Other than that, I mean, recruiting people and getting them to enter the intervention is obviously the challenge. When you've got research staff, they tend to make things happen in a way that, as you know from the implementation literature, isn't always so easy once the researchers have gone away. So I think we need to do some work on implementation to to think about how best to achieve the intervention happening in in routine practice. I think it also, what, what didn't happen very much and what I think might have made the intervention more effective would have been if we provided a bit more support for people if they wished to engage clinicians whom they were seeing with their crisis planning and and with their self-management strategies. And if doing some further work on this, I'd want to look at how that could best happen, as I think that might well make the intervention work so better than it did in this study. Yeah, that does make sense, doesn't it? So the, the the service user kind of carries around their recovery plan and shares it with whichever professional they need to. And that maybe where service users feel comfortable with that, the professionals can have a bit of input to developing the plan in the first place and thinking what's a feasible crisis plan, what are the options It links really to the literature on advanced directives and joint crisis plans in mental health, which we've been taking another look at in in terms of the PIU Mental Health Act work. And it does seem as if from the studies that have been done, probably the most effective interventions to prevent compulsory admission are ones around joint crisis plans involving clinicians and service users deciding together what should happen in a crisis. So I think if we could, in an implementation study, link what we've done to that work, one might find one could develop a a 
intervention that worked really well in trying to reduce crises, including those that result in compulsory admission in mental health care. Mm-hmm.